0: The Lord Jesus said in John 15, except ye abide in me, the branch and the vine, ye can do nothing. But if ye abide in me, you can bear much fruit. And that's the key right there, is to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? We believe on him and keep his commandments. That's how we abide in him. It's not a mystery. It's very simple. And it calls for our daily investment in that relationship. Let's open the precious word of God that was just prayed Four to Hebrews chapter three. Hebrews chapter three. It is a humbling but great privilege and pleasure to speak the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and to speak about the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you read Hebrews one and two last evening. Last Lord's Day, I introduced you again to those two well-known chapters with the first four verses of each chapter because they emphasize so highly the value and importance of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us, By His Son. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that actually heard Him. First generation apostles. Praise the Lord for that. Now we come to chapter 3. The whole book of Hebrews, my favorite book of the New Testament, is to prove the superiority of Jesus Christ to everything in the religion of God of the Old Testament. Amen. Whether it's the covenant, the promises, the angels, the prophets, the priesthood, the law, Jesus and the gospel of the New Testament is superior to all of it. Right. And far right. superior to all of it. Amen. We come to chapter 3. Let me read to you a first few verses there. And the point of my reading is for you to realize that the words of Jesus Christ are most important, very important to our religion. We have that wonderful name by which we are called Christian. That is not an effeminate name. That is not a weak name. That is not a name that you ought to be ashamed of. You ought to be thankful and blessed and confident to be called a Christian. To be called an American is a weak and pitiful and effeminate title. To be called a Russian. To be called a Chinese. Those are pitiful titles and who cares about any of them. But to be called a Christian and to be a member of his kingdom and to be followers of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Even in the Bible, the word Nazarene was important because our brother Paul was a leader of the sect Of the Nazarenes. And those are not the denomination called Nazarene today. Those are the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. And so we read these verses here. Let me read to you a few from the first first part of Hebrews chapter 3. After all that was said in chapters 1 and 2 about Jesus being superior to the angels, Wherefore, holy brethren... Partakers of the heavenly calling, consider, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man, Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. Amen. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses, verily, was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Amen. Amen. Consider... Our profession. Our profession is to be a Christian. We have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ upon a profession of our faith in Him as our Lord and our Savior. And so we are to consider Him. He is the Apostle. And I love our King James Bibles that capitalize that word Apostle and then capitalized his title as High Priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. We are to consider Him. Consider that our religion is not based on twelve apostles sitting in Salt Lake City who claim to be the twelve apostles of the Mormon church. I remember using Hebrews 3.1 on a Mormon one time who asked me, do you have an apostleship and a high priesthood in your church? Oh, do you know where to go? You go to Hebrews 3 1. Yes, we happen to have an apostle and a high priest in our church. Christ Jesus. Not Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and his descendants. Praise the Lord. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Who was faithful to Him that appointed Him? And who appointed Him? God directly appointed Jesus of Nazareth to be our Lord and our Savior. And He was faithful to Him and did everything He asked Him and called upon Him to do and charged Him to do, including the death of the cross. Turn to chapter 8. Same book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter (coughs) 8. Hebrews is so logical and quite dramatic in Paul's choice of words to convince the Hebrews not to worry about what they were giving up to follow Jesus Christ because he was superior to everything the Jews' religion had to offer. Hebrews 8, look at, look at how he opens up verse 1 of the 8th chapter. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. I love the bottom line. You know, I love men getting to the bottom line. Cut the chase. Just tell me the bottom line. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. And if you were a Hebrew, that should get your attention. That that little earthly tabernacle that Moses pitched, and that little temple that Solomon built, and then Zerubbabel replaced, all of those were very inferior to the tabernacle that the Lord pitched. Which is heaven itself and Zion there, and Jesus is the minister of that sanctuary. The Lord Jesus Christ goes into the very sanctuary where God dwells in heaven, For us and makes intercession for us there. And this is the bottom line of our religion. It's far superior even to the Old Testament religion that God gave the Jews. Let alone any other denominational ideas or religious ideas or hallucinations of men for the last 6,000 years. Even compared to God's religion of the Old Testament, Jesus is superior. So we want to hear Him. So as I began this morning, we want to say with Samuel... Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. We want to say with our brother Paul, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Let's turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and remind ourselves where we found the words, the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 3, if any man teach otherwise, 1 Timothy 6.3, this is the dogmatism of the Bible. Amen. This is the dogmatism of God Himself. This is how dogmatic God expects us to be about truth and teachers. Right. If any man teach otherwise, And consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse Disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such, withdraw thyself. Now, if you have a modern version, you don't have the last clause of verse 5 because it was taken out of your Bible because it was just a little too divisive for those poor translators. And if you have another version of the Bible... The clause before that is corrupted, not to teach the same thing. Because this fifth verse is very important. It teaches us that gain is not godliness, that growth is not godliness, that because there's a church with 30,000 members in Houston or in Southern California where Rick Warren's the pastor doesn't prove a thing. In fact, in the Word of God, it does prove something. It proves that it's an abomination in God's sight. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. He's called the pastor of the United States because he's an abomination to God. Do you think the Apostle Paul was ever called the pastor of the Greek nation? What they try to do to Paul? They chased him from city to city to city. They tried to kill him. They did kill him. The Lord raised him from the dead. That's right. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to know those words. We want to know what Jesus taught. Now the context here, the first two verses, is how you work. In the first verse, it's how you work for unbelievers. In the second verse, it's how you work for a believer. So it's practical religion. It's practical Christianity. And if any man teaches different than this, he is proud Because he's balking against the Lord and the head of our religion. The head of our religion is Jesus Christ. He's the apostle and the high priest of our profession. And if you oppose him and anything that he said and the doctrine that he taught, then you're proud and you don't know anything. All you're doing is doting and arguing about strife of words where there's no profit except a bunch of envy and strife. You're destitute of the truth. You're perverse. And all you want to do is argue. This is the word of the Lord. It's in this third verse that we have the expression wholesome, the adjective wholesome. And consent not to wholesome words. When something is wholesome, this word is only used one other time in our Bibles. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 15, 4. The word wholesome means something that is beneficial. Something that is healthful. Something that is helpful. Something that is salutary. Something that produces well-being. Something that conveys goodness. So wholesome words are words that are beneficial and helpful and healthful and produce a good effect of well-being, moral character, godliness and truth. The wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's so many of them, it would take us many months to preach them all. So we just want to look at a few. And I'm using a different Bible because I wanted a red letter edition up here instead of my Oxford. But let's go to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30. In the second assembly today, I want to give a few men who didn't have a chance last Sunday an opportunity to use the pulpit to speak a few words of Jesus Christ that they delight in. If you don't, I will. I have plenty. It's not because I don't have enough on this subject. There's too much, but I want you to share it. Brethren, there's a method to my madness. I want you to read your Bibles. Right. I want you to read the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to delight in them. I want you to be able to stand and speak them. Because you all need to be able to do that. You should all want to do that. What, a greater, what greater privilege is there? I've spoken in other venues long before I was a pastor in South Carolina. This is the greatest privilege I've ever had. This is the greatest privilege you can ever have. To speak to the Lord's people. The Lord's words. Right. Matthew chapter 12. There's a lot in this chapter in red print if you have a red letter edition Bible. I want one little expression out of verse 30. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me, scattereth abroad. The world has an idea that Jesus wants everybody to come together. They talk about it all the time. That's what is meant by the words, the ecumenical movement. Ecumen. Ecumenical movement is to get everyone together. Jesus doesn't want everyone together. Jesus was set For the rise and fall of many in Israel. Simeon told Mary his mother that when he was but 40 days old in his hands. Jesus was a 40 day old baby in Jerusalem. And a prophet named Simeon looked at his mother and said, This child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel. And he shall be spoken against. This child. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of John three times, and there was a division among the people because of him. Jesus divides. Jesus knew he would divide. Simeon knew he would divide. He is not trying to get everyone together. He is trying to get his disciples to follow the truth. And that's going to mean there's division in families, division in churches, and division in nations because of him. In this particular case, he has the religious leaders of the Jewish nation... So the so-called people of God accusing him of casting out devils by the power of the prince of devils. And he gives a lesson about the stronger man coming and delivering us out of the palace of the devil. And then he says, let, let your children decide by what authority they cast out devils. The gypsies that were among the Jews that cast out devils by the power of the devil. It was just a pretense and a fraud. And then he points out this 30th verse, He that is not with me is against me. And he is not talking to Philistines and Egyptians. He is talking to the most conservative religious people on earth, the Jews, who worship Jehovah falsely. I want you to remember this. This is a point that I want to make. I've reorganized my entire outline. I want to do it by category. It's helped me. I had a nightmare on my hands. How do you take all the expressions of Jesus and somehow put them together in a way that might make sense and help us to delight in them? We want the wholesome words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of them. And this is something that is not taught today. Jesus is not trying to get all men together. Because Jesus wants you to understand and know that if you're not with Him, you're against Him. And the Him is the one that the Bible presents. And if you're not gathering with Him in the way that He gathers, then you're scattering abroad. And you're causing offense and harm in the kingdom of Jesus Christ and not help. Jesus didn't bother to teach truth to those that didn't deserve it. Look at Matthew 13. Turn to the next chapter. We've been over these points many times, but these are the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 13, verse 10. The disciples came and said unto Him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Jesus, don't you know that your preaching is hard to understand? Jesus, we've got this huge audience here. If you'd get the praise band, and you'd call up a football player, or if you would just tell some simple little stories, people could understand. Why are you using parables? Do you know what a parable is? A parable is a riddle. A parable is a proverb. A parable is what's called a dark saying in the Bible. Now, if you've been to Sunday school too long, you've been taught that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings to make it easy for the common people to understand truth. That is a lie. That is a total lie. A parable is not an earthly story with a heavenly meaning to make anything simple. A parable is a complex, complicated, dark saying. It's a riddle that needs to be explained. Like a parable is just an extended proverb. Jesus' parables were longer than the proverbs of Solomon, aren't they? Because a parable is just a longer proverb. The disciples understood it better than any Sunday school teacher. They said, why do you speak to them in parables, Jesus? They can't understand you. Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, I'm so sorry that I misread my audience. I'll restate things so that they can figure them out because I want them to know the truth so bad. I do not say that to mock the Word of God nor our Savior. I say that to get your attention to understand what is here that is not preached about the Jesus of the Bible because they have a different Jesus. He answered and said unto them, This is why I speak in riddles. Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is proud knowing nothing. This is the word of the Lord. So if you ever, you young people, don't you ever listen to a man that teaches otherwise than Matthew 13. Because he's lying and he has another Jesus. And he knows nothing. And he's proud. And he's destitute of the truth. And he's just wanting to argue. And he believes that gain is godliness. And he wants to get gain from your pocket. This is the word of the Lord. I love this Jesus Christ. The first time I heard this, blew my mind. Blew me away. Oh, I can follow a Jesus Christ like this because I had enough spiritual understanding and it wasn't much. But it was enough to know that not all men deserve the truth. Truth is not a right. Amen. Truth is a privilege and a blessing of God's pure grace and mercy. Right. Do you know why? Because in the very beginning, our race chose a lie over truth. That's right. God gave the truth in Genesis chapter 2. The devil gave a lie in Genesis chapter 3. Our father and mother chose a lie. Right. When God deceives a prophet he's doing something very righteous yes. he's giving people what they want yes, right. do you know what jesus said in john 8 45 ye believe not because i tell you the truth Amen. if he were to preach a lie his audience would have grown That's right. Mm-hmm. Right. you say that doesn't make sense oh yes it does We could fill the Bilo Center if we would advertise a lie. That in Genesis chapter 6, angels came down and had sex with men, and there are angel men walking on the earth, and we're going to have one of them speak at the Bilo Center. We'd fill the place, baby. We'd fill it. We could pass out Kentucky Fried Chicken Buckets, and they would fill it with their dollar bills. Some of you could be sitting in a little room in the basement counting it the whole time we're lying to them. You've never heard that one before? Genesis chapter 6. The first few, oh yeah, they've got names for them. They've got what they look like, what they do. They're Oh yeah. It says the sons of God looked upon the daughters of men and took of them all that they desired. And so they think that angels came down and had sex with women. And the resulting offspring were just so special. Incredible. Anyway, let's let's not go there. There's about two million more stories like that that people pull out of the Bible that if we were to advertise those, there'd be an audience. We want the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible says. Jesus, why speakest thou in riddles parables to them? Why are you speaking a language difficult to understand? Why are you doing that? Look at this audience you have. Can't you get it down on their level? Because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, Peter, James, and John. But to them it is not given. Therefore, I speak out of them in parables. Because they seeing see not, they hearing hear not, neither do they understand, and neither will I convert them. Amen. They didn't deserve conversion. They had rejected the prophets of God for 2,000 years. And now they were rejecting the Son of God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, and He preaches separation. Look at chapter 15. Separation. He divides. He discriminates between those that are of God and those that are of the devil. He makes a difference in crowds. He's able to discern it quickly. He's able to say the right things, to offend the wicked, and to bless the righteous. All with the same language. Do you know what the Apostle Paul said about that language? He said, if we, when we preach Christ, we always triumph. Amen. We're always successful. You say, how can you be called successful when you start with an audience of 10,000 and when you're done, there's only 23 left? Because the 9,977 that left, you didn't want there. And the 23 that are left prove that they have the life of God in them. Paul said, we are a sweet savour unto Christ in all things, all times. We are a savour of death unto death in them that perish, and we are a savour of life unto life in them that are saved. Amen. If that is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the last four verses. And we do not corrupt the word of God. Do you know what he meant by that? We are not going to modify the message in order to keep some of those that are death unto death. We're going to preach the truth. Matthew 15, the disciples had to come to Him again. Now you think from chapter 13 to 15, they would have remembered the lesson. Matthew chapter 15, verse 12, Then came His disciples and said unto Him, Jesus, knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Jesus, look it! The Pharisees came to hear you preach. Jesus, we got the Pharisees here. They came to hear you. I mean, they're the most influential men that we have. They're the religious leaders. They're the ones that need to hear the truth from you. And you went and offended them. Why would you offend the religious leaders of our nation? Those are good men of God. Matthew fifteen twelve. His disciples said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended? After they heard this saying, He answered and said, I'm so sorry. Call them back and tell them I didn't mean to say it that way. He answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Where did Jesus want the leader? In the ditch. Where did Jesus want those being led? In the ditch. What did Jesus say to do with them? Let them alone. Leave them alone. From such withdraw thyself. Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Every pretender in my kingdom, in the kingdom of God, that is not truly a regenerate child of God, is going to be ripped up and plucked out. The tares will be taken out. The wheat will remain. Jesus said that. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Son of God. This is the Savior that we follow. This is the head of our religion. This text has not been preached in Brookwood in the last year. You say, how do you know? If you have to ask the question, you're too simple for me to even explain it to you. Praise the Lord. Jesus believed in separation. And we are not talking about Baal worshipers. We are talking about the so-called worshippers of Jehovah and the most conservative denomination that existed in the land of Israel. The Apostle Paul taught us that the Pharisees were the straightest sect of the Jews' religion. It was the most conservative. They were the fundamentalists. They were the Bible thumpers. Oh, yes, they, were the, they wore the Bible on their foreheads, remember? They had phylacteries on their garments and on their arms. Little boxes of scripture. They were the Bible thumpers of his generation. He condemned them and said, let them alone. They're blind. Leaders of the blind, let them both end up in the ditch. Jesus warned of division. Matthew chapter 10. You're familiar with these words? I may have already given them to you. Let's remind ourselves quickly of them again. Matthew chapter 10. I've mentioned to you that three times in the Gospel of John it says there was a division among the people because of him. But those weren't his words. So I just refer to that. Matthew chapter 10, we come to verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When some man preaches that Jesus wants every family to get together. No, he doesn't. This is what Jesus teaches. This is what Jesus taught. Think not. Don't think this idea that I came for peace. Think not. I remember with some Jehovah's Witnesses stood on my doorstep at 8 Carolina Drive a number of years ago. And their opening words to me were, do you know that Jesus wants to bring universal peace to earth? I said, no, I don't know that. Let me show you what the Bible says. And let me use the Bible that your founder used, and that's a King James Bible, because your founder, Charles Taze Russell, used a King James Bible. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 10 and find out what Jesus actually said about peace. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. Don't think that. This is the Jesus of the Bible. Don't think that. Don't think that the United Nations is some Christian organization because it claims to be seeking peace. I came not to send peace but a sword. Then he goes on to describe that sword coming right into families because Jesus is going to test us to find out if we love him more than our family relationships. Because if you don't love Jesus more than your family relationship, you cannot be his disciple. Those are his words from Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. If you don't love me more than your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, your son, your daughter, your wife, you cannot be my disciple. This is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he teaches discipleship. Discipleship. He taught it strictly. He taught it plainly. I want you to see those words. Luke 14. Luke 14, what we just read in Matthew chapter 10 was, Think not, don't think an error about me. And if any man teach otherwise and consent not to what we just read, he is proud and knows nothing. And we are to withdraw from such. Luke chapter 14, when the Lord Jesus Christ taught discipleship, He didn't tell, he didn't tell anyone. We have a program for every age group in our church. He didn't run up and down the street and tell mommies and daddies, we have a program for every age group. If you'll bring your little four and five year olds to church, we have junior church where they don't have to sit and listen to the boring word of God. They can go downstairs and play with flannel graph figures and remote control cars and we'll feed them graham crackers and milk. Jesus never talked like that. That's right. When he talked about discipleship, this is what came out of his mouth. When he had a big audience and he knew it was too big, this is how he thinned it down luke 14 verse 25 and there went great multitudes with him and he turned and said unto them i am so happy to see all of you here today i hope you all got up and looked at the mirror and said you're a beautiful looking man now that's robert schuler in the crystal cathedral a great multitudes are following jesus he has a huge crowd What does he do with them? He turned and said unto them, What are you all following me for? If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now that is not how you warm an audience. That is not how you appeal to the multitudes. But that is how Jesus described true discipleship. Do you remember the first song we sang this morning? And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's so much fun following Jesus. They tell everyone. But Jesus said, to follow me is to be crucified. Taking up your cross. Do you know what we sang this morning? Jesus, I, my cross have taken. All to leave and follow thee. This is the the Lord Jesus of the Bible. This is a leader. This is the head of our religion that I can follow. Do you want to follow this one? That little effeminate John Lennon that everyone else worships, I never had any interest in him. Who and what man could ever follow that one? You have a problem with your sexual orientation if you could follow that long-haired hermaphrodite. Are you kidding me? Give me the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got short hair that's as white as snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Out of his mouth proceeds a two-edged sword. His face is white. He's girdled out with a golden girdle. His feet are like burning brass. And when he speaks, it sounds like the voice of many waters. And when you see him, the man who knew him best on earth fell at his feet as dead. That's the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. Amen. And this is how he defines discipleship. This is what he said to multitudes. Because he knew what they were looking for. You read John chapter 6 a couple of weeks ago. Do you know what they were looking for? A free lunch. They had their, billy, their bellies filled because He fed them the loaves and the fishes. It's all in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is a wonderful chapter. For which of you... Listen to Him address this crowd. Which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost... "...whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him. You people that are following me, don't be following me for some sentimental, emotional reason. You need to sit down and count the cost of discipleship just as surely as you have to sit down and count the cost of whether you can build and finish a tower." Because if you don't count up the cost, you're going to lay the foundation of the tower. You're not going to be able to finish it, and everybody's going to make fun of you because you're a loser. And if you follow me just based on sentiment, and you don't count up the cost of discipleship, and realize that there is a severe price to pay, then you're not going to be able to continue as my disciple, and you're going to be a disgrace. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that makes sense to me. Yes! Those that are sincere, join in with them. And he showed us the example of what it meant to follow God. He laid down his life on the cross. Right, right. And we're to lay our lives down for our brethren like he laid his life down for us. This is the word of the Lord. He goes on to describe a military campaign. And how it's a whole lot better to make peace than it is to pretend that you can fight someone that outnumbers you. And he was telling the multitude, what I'm expecting of you is more than you can pay. So have a nice day. And in John chapter 6, what does it say? Many departed from him and followed him no more. Right. And so what did he say to the rest that were left? Wilt thou go away also? Amen. Because this is how the Lord Jesus Christ teaches discipleship. Look at Matthew chapter 10. You want an axiom for life? You want something to quote? Instead of quoting Mao... Or Joseph Smith, or Art Linkletter, or Dale Carnegie, or anyone else. Listen to the, listen to this axiom of life. Sherry and I bring this up on a rather frequent basis to each other. Matthew ten thirty nine. He's still talking about discipleship because if you look at the verses that come right in front of it, they're the same verses as we just read in Luke 14. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. This is an axiom of the Christian religion. If you want to find your life, then lose it for Jesus' sake. Everything that the world thinks by which you ought to measure your life, give those things up. And follow Jesus Christ and you'll find your life. The only way to find real happiness, real fulfillment, real satisfaction, and to make something of your existence is to lose your life for His sake. This is the Word of the Lord. What an axiom! An axiom is a rule by which to live. You say, well, is that in the Bible more than once? Well, to try chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we're looking for the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for wholesome words. Wholesome words that are beneficial and helpful to us, and our character and our moral quality, so that we can please God. Here they are. Lose your life. If you focused your life on athletic achievements, the Bible says bodily exercise, profit of little. If you have focused your life on some professional accomplishment, Or if you have focused your life on getting married or having a big family, forget those things. Focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and make Him the desire of your life. And you'll find your life. Children are always going to disappoint you. Spouses are going to disappoint you. Professions and jobs are going to disappoint you. But the Lord never will. If you want to find your life and make something of it, then lose it for His sake. In 1625, I believe we have it repeated. Matthew 16:25 for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Was there a young rich man that came to Jesus one time, and Jesus said, if you want to follow me, then sell what you have and give to the poor and come follow me. The, man, the young man went away sorrowing because he couldn't pay the price. He lost his life. How happy do you think that man was? okay, you you say, well, I don't know. He may have been very happy. Was he as happy as our brother Paul? Was Paul happy? Was Paul full of joy? Was he looking forward to dying? What's the word? Did he enjoy suffering? Be very careful. Most, most, what did we use recently from 2 Corinthians 12? Most, most gladly. Most gladly. Most gladly. Yeah. He understood that. The Lord Jesus Christ. Was He a predestinarian? Did He believe in God's sovereignty in making differences among men? Look at Luke chapter 4 when He went to His hometown. You know this. I want you to see it in the red writing and know the Jesus of the Bible. Was Jesus a predestinarian? Did Jesus believe in the sovereignty of God of making differences among men? He stood up in the synagogue of his hometown, Nazareth, opened the scriptures and read Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, closed the book, handed to the master of ceremonies, sat down in his chair and said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your midst. And the whole audience marveled at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Luke chapter 4, verse 22 is where I just ended my paraphrase. Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, ye will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. I like that proverb. (laughs) You know, if you're going to go to a doctor, you might as well go to a doctor that's in good health, right? Because if a doctor can't keep himself in good health, what's he messing around with yours for? I like it. anyway. It's just, forget it. Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. If you're a healer, we've heard about your healing in other places, then show us some. Jesus is saying, this is what you're going to say to me. You're not going to be content with the word of Scripture that I just read and the fulfillment that I just declared to you. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now, why did he have to say that to them? Why didn't he try to earn their acceptance? Why did he say that to them? That was kind of confrontational. Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Eliseus the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. He laid on them the point I am not going to do any miracles here in Nazareth that I did in Capernaum because I'm going to make a difference here. I'm going to make a difference like God made in Israel. In the days of the famine of Elijah's life, God saved the widow of Sidon, of the city of Sarepta. In the days of Elisha, when there were many lepers in Israel, God only cleansed Naaman the Syrian. And when they in the synagogue, and all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Jesus preached election, and Jesus preached election and discrimination and distinction between Israel and Sidon and Israel and the Syrians, and they hated Him for it, and they led Him to the brow of the hill to cast Him down headlong and to destroy Him. But that's what the Lord Jesus Christ taught. He was a predestinarian. Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Everyone wants to go to John chapter 10 because Jesus... They think that Jesus spent all of John chapter 10 asking people to become his sheep. Won't you be one of my little lambs so I can carry you around for the rest of your life? Won't you be one of my little lambs? A little lamb for Jesus. This is what Jesus said. John chapter 10 verse 26. Ye believe not, but ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Jesus, our Savior, Jesus of the Bible, was a predestinarian. Because He preached here that God had predestinated the eternal life of certain ones that were the true sheep of Jesus, because God had given them to Jesus to save. My Father which gave them Me. I don't need you to give you to Me. God gave My sheep to Me. I know them. I lay down My life for the sheep. My sheep hear My voice. I give to My sheep eternal life, and no man can pluck them out of My Father's hand. But ye are not of My sheep as I said unto you. Wow! That is the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. Yes, he was a predestinarian. Do you know what he said to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18? I gave this to you a couple of weeks ago. He appeared to Paul in a vision in the city of Corinth because Paul was running into persecution in the city of Corinth. And he said, stay in this city. No man's going to hurt you because I have much people in this city. Acts 18 verses 9 and 10. I have much people in this city. Jesus knew those that God had given Him and that He was going to save. They weren't all His people hoping that they would all accept Him. He had ones that were given to Him by God. Oh, thank You, Lord. Thank You, Lord. Do you know what things you can learn by reading the words of Jesus? Look at Matthew 6. Look at these instructive words. Instructive words. In Matthew chapter 17, a man came to Jesus of Nazareth. He had a lunatic son. This son oftentimes threw himself in the fire trying to destroy himself. He's like a punk rocker today. Devil possessed and trying to destroy himself. This man brought his lunatic son to Jesus. The disciples couldn't cast the devils out of the sun. So the man brought him to Jesus and said, Your disciples couldn't do it. Lord, help me. If thou believest, all things are possible. I believe, Lord, help thou my unbelief. I gave the rest to you last Sunday. Jesus said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you could move mountains. But there's one other thing he said. It's not in a modern version. It's Matthew 17:21. Matthew 17:21 has been taken out of the NIV, the ESV, and the other V's. Do you know what Matthew 17:21 says? This kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Amen. What kind, we have a great teacher. We have a great teacher in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are certain situations that you're going to run into in life that you need to use prayer and fasting, and if you don't use prayer and fasting, it's not going out. Now, that, that's a mystery. That's a secret of the kingdom of heaven. That's a mystery of the kingdom of heaven. This kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Thank you, Lord, for that. Look at Matthew 6, verse 4. That thine alms may be in secret. Make sure that when you give, you do it as secretly as you can and you should. Thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. That's a nice, I'm talking about the instruction that Jesus' words give. You don't want a bunch of fanfare for giving. We don't want to read about you in a newspaper. Because you're supposed to do it in secret and the Lord will reward thee openly. It's in verse 4. It's in verse 6 when you pray. Do it in secret, and your Father will reward you openly. It's also in verse 18. When you fast, don't look like you're fasting. but you're fa- Make it look like you're not fasting. Jesus and your, your Father in heaven will see that you're fasting, and He'll reward you openly. These are things we'd never know if it weren't for the Lord Jesus Christ teaching us points of doctrine that we didn't know. Right? How would we know what the angels in heaven rejoice over if it wasn't for Luke 15? The angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that repents more than over ninety and nine just persons that need no repentance. Those are ninety and nine self-righteous persons that don't need repentance. Jesus taught us that. He taught us about forgiveness and the, the beauty of it in heaven. And the angels in heaven rejoice. You love to read Luke chapter 7. I know that you love to read it where Jesus confronted Simon the Pharisee at a supper where he sat, when Simon the Pharisee and the Pharisees that were with him despised the woman that was a great sinner in that city that came in and kissed the feet of Jesus. Right. Jesus defended that woman, rebuked Simon, and then taught us a lesson about forgiveness. But if you're truly forgiven, you're going to love much. That's right. If you really know you're a sinner and you really know God's forgiven you, you're going to love and return much. Because you're going to know what he's done for you. You love Luke 7 for that. We never want to forget those words of the Lord Jesus Christ. How about the promises he made? Do you like the promises of Jesus? Look at Acts chapter 1. There was a pretty big promise there. It's something he spoke of throughout the Gospel of John. And that was, the Father is going to send the Comforter in my name. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to abide with you forever. That Holy Spirit is going to bring to remembrance the things that I've taught you, apostles, so that you're going to be able to write them down and preach them. The Holy Spirit's going to take my place. It's expedient for you that I go away, that the Comforter may come. Jesus taught that over and over, John 13, 14, 15, 16. Amen. In Acts chapter 1, I want to show you, is Acts chapter 1, do we have a little bit in the red writing? Amen. Mm-hmm. In Acts chapter 1, it says in verse 4, "...being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem." But wait for the promise of the Father, which, is it in the red, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. Jesus told his apostles and those who were with them to wait in Jerusalem to be endued with power from on high, because the promise of the Father that I taught you is going to come to pass. And what a change that brought on the religious world. Do you know how big that religious change was? Joel described it as the sun not shining, the moon turning into blood, there being blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. Peter said, this is that that Joel prophesied because the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. This is our Savior. He made promises and He kept them. He told things that God was going to do and He did them. Look at Luke chapter 6. You want a promise? You want a promise to get excited about? How about a promise related to giving? We've been over this verse before. We better be familiar with the words of Jesus. If I'm bringing to you words that you haven't heard before, then there's something wrong with our church. Right. You should know the words of Jesus. Look at Luke 6.38. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Cast your bread upon the water. For it shall return unto you after many days. Ecclesiastes 11.1 Don't you look at the clouds. Don't you look at the economic circumstances of our country and think that there's hardly any profit in going to work anymore. And, it, and there certainly isn't any profit in giving money away. Because the economic times look bad. I need to stop my giving. I need to slow my giving in order to preserve myself because of bad economic times that are coming. Solomon, told, We went over all this already. In Ecclesiastes 11, the first six verses, Solomon said, don't reason that way. Do both. Get up in the morning and sow your field and don't worry about the clouds from that standpoint. And at night, when somebody comes needing something, hand it to them. Feed seven. Give a portion to eight. Because in the sixth verse, Solomon said, how do you know that God isn't going to bless both efforts? Right. And if God blesses both efforts, oh brethren, you are blessed. You are blessed. That's what's in this verse, because Jesus was the son of Solomon. Give. He was the son of God. And he was greater than Solomon. That's what I was hoping you would connect. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure. If it's a gallon, it's a full 128 fluid ounces. Good measure. If it's a pound, it's a full 16 ounces. Good measure, if it's an ounce, it's a full 28 grams. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. Do you believe that promise? That's the word of Jesus. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is proud and knows nothing. This is the word of God. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Does that get the point across? I've been through describing the box of cereal to you before. And why it says on the side, when you open the top of this box, don't be surprised if you look halfway down and the box is only half full. The contents may have settled during shipping. Because that's shaken down. When you're rattling in a truck 2,000 miles from a cereal factory in Kellogg, in, in 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 where is that place? Don't don't tell me Battle Creek, Michigan. It'll come. Kellogg's in Battle Creek, Michigan. It shakes down, shaken down. Then you get in there and you crush it down. And it's a good measure, fully measured out. But it's running over the top. Men shall press into your bosoms. They'll give into your bosom. This is the word of the Lord. I love His promises. Do you you believe all of them? Do you know what promise we ought to love the most? It's the red writing at the end of your Bible. Surely, I come quickly. Surely. Yes. That's how He ends the Bible. Was Jesus prayerful? Did He give His disciples a format for prayer? Did he tell them how to pray and be importunate in prayer? Did he say to Peter, I have prayed for thee? Do you know how wonderful that is? Those are red words that just ought to bless your heart. You ought to get down on your knees and say, Lord Jesus Christ, pray for me. Be my intercessor at this hour. I face temptations like Peter faced. I feel like the devil wants to sift me. Pray for me that my faith fail not. Help me, Lord. And I'll strengthen my brethren when I'm converted. Because Jesus is prayerful. The words of Jesus, there's prayer. He went into a mountain and continued all night in prayer. I love the priorities that Jesus sets. Jesus says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice in Matthew chapter twelve. Jesus said in Matthew twenty three twenty three that judgment, mercy, and faith are more important than paying tithes on your herb garden. Judgment, doing what is right and fair. Mercy, showing kindness to those under your power. Judgment, mercy, and faith. Trusting and believing God. Those are the important things. These are the things you ought to have done. Jesus could take the entire Old Testament. You know it's three quarters of your Bible. Jesus could take the entire Old Testament and boil it down to two commandments. The love of God and the love of neighbor. On this hangs the whole law and the prophets. I love priorities and simplification like that, and the Lord gave it to us. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know how scriptural Jesus was when confronted by the devil? It is written. It is written. It is written. He was the Son of God. He was God's Son. He could have argued with the devil. He could have argued with the devil better than any man, but He gave us an example that we should follow. It is written. It is written. The devil knows the Bible is true. It is written. Jesus trusted every word of God. Jesus would argue from individual words four different times in the Gospels. Do you know how to find them? Do you know where they are? In Matthew chapter 22, or two of them, one's in John 8, one's in John 10. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, God said to Moses... 400 years after Abraham died, I am the God of Abraham. If God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham, present tense verb, am, I am the God of Abraham, when Abraham was dead, and God's the God of the living and not the God of the dead, then Abraham must be alive somewhere. That the Lord Jesus loves Scripture. When He went to His hometown, He stood up and read Scripture. He said, this day is the Scripture fulfilled. In Matthew chapter 22, he said, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They said, a son of David. He quotes Psalm 110 and he says, then why did David in spirit call him Lord? If David called him Lord, then how can he be his son? Arguing from the word Lord that that was the proper word that should be there in Matthew chapter 22. In John chapter 8, he says, before Abraham was... I was. Is that what he said? No. Or did he say in John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was? I am. Amen. Now how would you use a past tense with a present tense like that? Before Abraham was, I am. Because there's only one being that is present tense like that at all times, and it's Jehovah God. How about John chapter ten? If the scripture calls them gods to whom the word of God came, then what is wrong with me being the son of God? And the scripture cannot be broken. Did Jesus love the Bible? Scripture cannot be broken. John 10.35 is quoting from the Psalms where rulers are called gods. And Jesus said that word is the proper word that should be in the Old Testament. And from that word I base my argument that for me to call myself the son of God is no great offense since... They were called gods to whom the word of God came. I love our savior. He didn't ever say, well, it could be this, brethren, and it could be that. And, and I know of a good old commentator that put it this way, and you just decide what you would like. He said, this is what it says, and this is how we argue from individual words. How much did Jesus teach us about love? Did Jesus teach us what love is when it comes to Him? It's keeping His commandments. That's how we prove it. Did Jesus tell us how important it is to love our brethren? He said it's it's the proof by which you are my disciples. Right. Did Jesus tell us how to love our enemies? Yes, he did. He said to pray for them that despitefully use you, bless them that curse you, do good to them. He said, That's how you're the true children of God is to love your enemies. When someone said, I I hear you, Master. But the second great commandment is to love thy neighbor as thyself. Who is my neighbor? Did Jesus know how to answer that? Amen. Jesus took the most culturally offensive person to a Jew, which was a Samaritan, and told the story of the good Samaritan to make the point that if you really want to learn how to love your neighbor, then you'll love someone that is culturally despised by your culture when God puts them in your path and they have a need. How much more could we say? Did Jesus teach us other love instead of self-love? Right. The world teaches a Jesus that says we all need to learn how to love ourselves. The Bible teaches us a Jesus that tells us we need to learn to love others as we love ourselves because you already do too good of a job loving yourself. Right. You need to learn other love, not learn self-love. Jesus taught that. What do they call the golden rule? And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Who invented that? Confucius? Listen, confusion never came up with anything worth remembering. That's right. Don't you forget his name is Confusion. The whole nation's confused. We want the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is worth living. Right. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You want to talk about relational wisdom? That is relational wisdom. That comes from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are wholesome words. Whenever you hear anyone teaching about self-love or self-esteem, you know that you've got a false prophet and a false teacher. The perilous times of the last days, the first character trait of the perilous times, what is it? Men shall be lovers of their own selves. The true religion of Jesus Christ is to learn how to be lovers of others. He was a man full of hope. I am the resurrection and the life. Amen. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How much more is He going to give you everything else you're worried about? you worried about tribulation in this world? Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You want hope? Then read the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was full of hope even though He was going to the cross. Do you know why? Because he saw the joy that was set before him. Do you know how much joy is coming? The Bible calls it the eternal weight of glory compared to our light affliction for a moment. Light for a moment. Momentary lightness is all your affliction is. Do you know what heaven is? An eternal weight of glory. Jesus saw that. Jesus taught that. I've overcome the world. Be of good cheer. He was so spiritual. He said, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. He said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He understood that. He saw his disciples as they struggled. Do you know how comforting that is to me? Because he knows the struggle I have. But do you know what I can claim? Just like Hezekiah claimed it on his sickbed. Lord, look upon me for the integrity of my heart. Because I do have a spirit that indeed is willing. It's my flesh that's weak. Paul said, it's my flesh that I'm in bondage to. Who shall deliver me from the body of this flesh? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. He knows that. He knows that we're so weak. Much more could be said. Do you know that Jesus took apart 20 Catholic doctrines before they ever came into existence? 20 of them. From the Shroud of Turin to calling priest father and 18 in between those two. He tore them apart. He met the first Mary Alliter and he took her apart. He said, yea, rather, forget the blessed breast that I sucked, and forget the blessed womb that bore me. Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. He took apart Mary Allatry. Your mother and your brethren are here to see you. Who is my mother? Who are my, who are my brethren? These are my, brother, my mother and my brethren. Those that hear the word of God and keep it. Don't use vain repetitions when you pray. The heathen think that they'll be heard for their much speaking. He took apart the rosary. Don't you, wear in, don't you enlarge your garments when you're in public? Catholic vestments. Don't call any man father upon earth. You're to be called brethren because you're all brothers. And on and on it goes. You know, James and John wanted to start the first inquisition. When they ran into a village of Samaritans that they wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn up. That was the Inquisition. You know, the Romans did the Romans and the Roman Catholics did that later by burning Christians at the stake. But Jesus said, Ye know not what spirit ye are of. Right. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. When he did run into Pharisees that he knew were his enemies, what did he say? He said, leave them alone. He didn't say, Peter, get two swords and kill them. He said, leave them alone. It's all the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Savior, He's our Lord, He's our Teacher, He's our Master, He's our Rabbi. Consider the Apostle and High Priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. May you love the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible, and may you delight in the words that are in the red writing in your Red Letter Edition King James Bibles. May you learn them. May you speak of them. And may we speak of them in a few minutes. Amen.